Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Do you, do you like that little title I chose for November? I was, I was afraid it was going to be a bit too intellectual. <laughs> Nexus November. It sort of rhymes well, doesn't it? But, but I just love that word. Is it up there? Okay, the definitions are not up there, but okay. It's, it's really, I love the one that it's all about connection and it's all about getting to the heart of something. And I think really in November, that's what I want to do. I sort of, I, I, I want to do a series of messages that kind of get to the heart. Of course, I'll be connecting that with heart values because that's the heart of who we are. Everything, everything that we do in life comes and is driven by a value system. And um, everybody has a value system. You may be aware of it, you may be conscious of it, or you might not be. But every single one of you has a particular value system. Things You make your decisions based on what you consider to be important, what you consider to be a priority. And, and sometimes those values, they're very hidden, they're very foundational to who we are. And really, in life, the best thing to do is just to become of, aware of what it is that drives you. Uh, and the more aware you become of what drives you, the more intentional you can be about choosing what you want to value in life, what you think is important in life. And uh, there's, there's times in, in my own journey in life where I've realized I came to certain crisis points. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Okay. I came to certain crisis points and I realized that what was driving me was not going to take me into my destiny and, and into my future. I had to make certain shifts, shifts in my thinking, shifts in my value systems. I had to let certain things go. I had to embrace other things. And, um, and really, my message t- today, um, I, I want to connect it into the whole value of honor. And, I, and the title of my message is The Road to Honor. The Road Towards Honor. And uh, I've got a few proverbs to read to you, which kind of really sets the stage for where I'm going in my message this morning. Here's the first one. It's in Proverbs 16.33. I'm going to read a few proverbs. How many of you know proverbs are helpful because they're written by the wisest man who ever lived? You know, other than Jesus. So, so, so this is good stuff for us. Proverbs 6.15.33. Here's what it's... 15.33. Sorry, my glasses need cleaning. Um, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Before, how many want honor in their life? Yeah. You want to be honored, you have to give honor. Well, there's something that comes before honor humility. So, so the title of my message is The Road to Honor. The Road to Honor is paved with humility. It's paved with humility. Let me read to you a few more scriptures. Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. How many of you know that's true? Before things fall apart, people get haughty. You know, they say pride leads to a fall. That's a misquote of scripture. Pride does not lead to a fall. Pride leads to destruction. Okay, at least to destruction. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. I want you to notice that the juxtaposition here, that, that, that before destruction, you get haughtiness, you get pride. Before honor, you get humility. There are certain things in life that always precede other things. 
And, and when, you know, I found that in my own life, when, when things fall apart, the first thing I look for is what's the state of my heart? Because God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look at achievement. Achievement has its place. There is an honor for achievement, and we should give honor for achievement. But like I said last week, you can have a faith that moves mountains and have not love, and it profits you nothing. You've got to have the right drive, the right motivation behind what you're doing. And, and so I always look to, well, what's the condition of my heart? If I can be honest about the condition of my heart, it helps me understand where am I positioned before God? And it says here that before honor is humility. Now, Proverbs 22 and verse 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So by humility, the fear of the Lord is an expression of humility. Here's the last one for you, Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So if, if we're going to be a church that lives with honor, that lives honoring God, that lives honoring with one another, one of the foundational things that we have to get right is the condition of our heart. And the condition of our heart needs to be one of humility. Now, it's really interesting because the word for humility in the Hebrew is anavah, and it's literally translated by three words in the Old Testament. One word is humility. The second word is meekness. And the third is gentleness. In fact, in 2 Samuel, uh, David is, is, is speaking in 2 Samuel, and, he, and he's talking to God, and, and he's, he's writing this wonderful uh, psalm of praise and, and, and declaring um, the goodness of God. In 2 Samuel 22 and verse 36, it says this, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, your gentleness has made me great. And the word gentleness is exactly the same word in the Hebrew that's translated in Proverbs as humility. Now, now imagine that. Your humility has made me great. Of all the attributes of God that he could have chosen, he chose that one. Isn't that astonishing? He, he didn't say your strength has made me great or your power has made me great. He didn't say your omnipotence has made me great. He, he didn't use those attributes of God. He said your gentleness, your humility, your meekness has made me great. You know, Jesus, when he invited people to come to him in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will, get, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, and learn of me because I am meek and lowly of heart. I'm humble. I'm gentle. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' invitation is based on the fact that at the core of his being, he's not out to get you. He, he's not out to control you. He's not out to dominate you. He's, he's not out to manipulate you. He is meek and lowly. There's a humility in the heart of Jesus that is so attractive. And I find that one of the most attractive things about people is when they're humble people. The most attractive thing about Jesus was his humility. He didn't parade himself. Love doesn't do that in 1 Corinthians 13. He just walked around loving people. In fact, the question that Jesus asked most of the time when people came to him was this, what do you want me to do for you? Let me rephrase that. 
How can I serve you? Does that sound good? You know, the, the difficulty is we live in a culture where everyone postures. Politicians posture. Pop stars posture. Uh, leaders of global organizations, they posture. They, they always want to look a certain way and project a certain image. God doesn't do that. The only posture that he has is one of heart. And that's one of meekness, humility, gentleness. That, that, that to me is so attractive. Because that kind of relationship, that kind of person is somebody you can open up to. It's somebody you can trust. It's somebody who's not going to use the knowledge about you to gain advantage over you. God isn't like that. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2. This is my main text. And, uh, and I'll, I'll unpack a few things from here. I hope it's going to help us all. Uh, it says this, uh, Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition and conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility. Let each esteem others better than himself. Now, now listen, let me just unpack that one. Esteeming others better than yourself doesn't mean that you think you're crap, that you think you're the worst person in the world. It, that, it isn't about having a negative self-image here. Esteeming others better than yourselves means that you place a value on people where your basic disposition is, how can I help them move forward in life? How can I do something to help them win? In, in other words, you are winning, you're running your race, you're walking in the fear of the Lord, you're walking in humility, but you want others to win too. Now, now how many of you know, most of the time when we compete, we don't just want to win, we want others to lose. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you go to a football match, you know, and it can get pretty tense because it's, it's not just about how you feel about winning, it's, what, it's the way you rub people's face in it when they lose. But in the Bible, Paul writes in such a way in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, look, we all run to win. In other words, I don't just want to win, I want you to win. Do you get it? Now, in the world, the only way I can feel good about myself is if you lose and I win. I feel so much better about myself. But in the kingdom, it's different. God wants a kingdom of winners where everybody wins, where everybody succeeds. That's what it really means here to esteem others better than yourself. It means that you're not jealous of them. You're not insecure when they do well. You don't suddenly think less of yourself, but rather you rejoice. If you do something out of conceit and selfish ambition, then there's always an agenda that's coloring everything that you do. And Paul said to this church, come on, don't be like that. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So in other words, you're not meant to ignore your needs. You're not meant to ignore your interests. Paul says, yeah, you, you look out for your interests, but don't make it exclusively yours. In other words, you're not here just to live for yourself. A person who lives for themselves is selfish. Now, how many of you know realizing selfishness is really difficult. 
Have you discovered that? Why? Because selfishness is, is very powerful. It's very deceiving. I, I, know, I know a lot of people who think, yeah, yeah, I live for others. And you think, yeah, well, just wait till you're a little bit older. I didn't know how selfish I was till I got married. And suddenly there was somebody there to remind me. And then, and then, you know, having been married for a while, then we had kids. I didn't realize how selfish I was till we had kids. And a lot of them. I guess I needed deliverance from a lot of selfishness. <laughs> Big families will do that to you. It's so funny. When my kids talk about, talk about meals, I, I remember my son, you know, he was, he was dating at one time. He was going out with a girl and... And, you know, at mealtime, you, you had to get in there pretty quick or the food was all gone. I never had a problem with our kids about finishing their meals because it's like, if you snooze, you lose. <laughs> and I remember when, when and, and all of the kids are like this, when they go out on a date, my, my son does this now, and he, he was going out on a date with a girl and he said, look, I'm about to order a dessert. He said, I'm going to happily pay for you to have a dessert. He said, I want you to have a dessert. No, 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 I'm not. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. He says, no, no, no. He said, let me just tell you something now. I'm about to order a dessert and I don't share my dessert with anybody. My dessert, all the men here know exactly what I'm talking about. My dessert is my dessert. I'll happily buy you a dessert but you have a decision to make right now. If you don't want one, you are not having any of mine. I don't mind buying you a dessert and you leaving half the dessert or only taking one mouthful, but right now, you will never have any of my dessert. I remember him telling me, she said, yeah, no, that's okay. You just get the dessert. Two minutes into the dessert. Oh, that looks so nice. Just a little. I told you. Sometimes you don't realize your own selfishness until you're in a context where it's revealed. I, I didn't know as a single man that there were aspects of my life that were selfish until I got married. I didn't know as a married man that there were aspects of my life that were selfish until I had kids. It's a journey of, of realizing things. Not only looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. You see, when I got married, I suddenly had to look out for my wife's interests. In other words, what was important to her had to become important to me. And when we had kids and, and they grew up and they had interests and they had things, you know, what was important to them had to become important to me. It couldn't replace what was important to me because then you just become the doormat. God doesn't want you to be a doormat. God doesn't want you just to have people walking all over you where you have no life of your own. But, but it's not just about looking out for your interests. It's about looking out for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, let this attitude be in you. Now listen to this. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. If you ever wanted a verse that talked about the equality of the Trinity, this is it. Now imagine that. Here is Jesus right alongside God the Father. 
Now, you have to understand, when Paul is writing these words, a lot of the people that he's writing to are are first century Jews. They're, They're people who've grown up with an understanding that God is one. And the idea that Jesus, that there was God is expressed in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was something they really had to wrestle with for a long time. In fact, it took about 200 years of church history before they dealt with the whole issue. But Paul was introducing this to this early church, and he said, when it came to Jesus, when he sat alongside God the Father, it was not presumptuous or robbery taking away from God's glory, God's honour, or who God was in nature for Jesus to say, we are equal. Hello? It was not robbery. He was not stealing anything from who God was by saying, we are equal in status. That is phenomenal theology right there. And so here's this Jesus, think about this, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Turn to your neighbor and say, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. You see, humility is essentially a choice that you make. Humility is not defined by your income or your circumstances or your education. Sometimes we do that. We use the word inappropriately. We say, yeah, he came from humble beginnings. Well, that's not what humility is really all about. That's how we use it. If a person doesn't wear, you know, flashy clothes, yeah, he dresses humbly. That's not really what this is about. This is about Jesus who had equal status with God the Father. But when it came to entering into our world and bringing salvation and bringing healing and bringing redemption to our world, he knew the only way he could do it was to humble himself. So he he wasn't born in a king's palace, even though he was a king. He was born in a stable. It doesn't get more humble than that, does it? And you see, in life, every single relationship in life has some kind of power inequality. And because there are power inequalities, the person with the less power is always at a disadvantage. So so if you're a teacher, you have the power over students. If you're the government, you have power over the people. If you're the general of an army, you have the power over soldiers. There are power inequalities everywhere in life. And when you are one of the people who's at the weak end of that power structure, that power inequality, it's very difficult for you to speak exactly what you think. Have you noticed in the army when you watch the movies, they say, permission to speak, sir. In other words, I know that this could cost me my promotion. (laughs) So they ask for permission to speak, you know, and and the guy will either say, no, I'm not interested in your opinion, or he'll say, yeah, you can speak. Have you ever been in a power inequality situation where somebody wanted you to share something and you knew if I do this, it could be very career limiting? I found that at work sometimes. You know, a boss asks you what you think and you think, well, if I say what I think here, I might not get promotion. I might get fired. So I won't say what I think. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Why do you do that? Because there's a power inequality. So what does God do? 
Jesus said, these people are never going to trust me. They're never going to open up to me as long as there's a power inequality. I will come as a servant under them. I will come with humility so that they can tell me exactly what they think, exactly how they feel. There doesn't have to be any pretense because I don't come it to lord over. I come it to serve under, which is the best form of leadership you can ever get. Because when you get that type of leadership, you're allowed to be honest. And I find in the kingdom, sometimes we sustain power inequalities in an unhealthy way. Now, I'm all for honor. I'm all for honor. I'm all, when position, you know, it says honor the king. That's biblical. We honor leaders in the church. That's biblical. We need to do that. But but listen, before honor is humility. (laughs) Before honor is humility. We've, We've got to learn to live with humility in our heart. Listen, I'm not here today coming to you as the senior pastor of Equippers Church in London, that, that is who I am. That is my role. I'm coming to you as a servant. I may have authority in that church, but the only authority I have in this church is the authority you choose to give me through trusting me. I don't demand it. I don't demand it. You don't even have to call me pastor if you don't want to. You don't even have to do that. I know I'm called to be a shepherd. You can call me darling. You can call me Peter. You can call me handsome. I don't mind what you label me with. I'll even take a few insults. Because I'm not here to demand something from you. I'm here to serve into who you are, the calling on your life, the calling on this church, the vision of this church. And the vision of this church, by the way, is a good vision. It's, it's a great vision. It was birthed in God. It wasn't birthed in man. And I, I honor that. I want to serve into that. And I, I want to encourage us. Come on. Jesus, it says... He made himself of no reputation. It says he humbled himself. He made choices based on what would serve you and I. You know, as a husband, I have to make choices based on what will serve my family. I remember when it came to the time where I felt like God was calling us to Denmark. And I had a a daughter who was 17 years of age. She was halfway through her A-levels. And I had a, a younger daughter who was not quite four years of age. And there was everything in between, six kids. And my wife and I, we prayed together for six months about this this idea of moving to Denmark. And it took us six months to come into unity. And then we really felt like God was telling us, yes, we need to relocate the whole family to Denmark. So then we sat down with the kids and we said, this is what we feel. What do you feel about it? I didn't sit down with them and say, God's told us to move to Denmark. How many of you know that's a very powerful, disempowering phrase to use, particularly with a child? So I said, I th- I, we think it's a good idea if we move to Denmark. And my kids had all kinds of questions. I said, well, look, you know, we've prayed about it, and Mum and I are in agreement. We, we think it's God, but what do you think? That was the language we used. You know, and all the little kids were really excited. (laughs) Does that mean we're going to have to learn Danish? I said, yep, you're going to go to Danish. You're going to have to learn Danish. And they they all got excited. The older ones did not get excited. (laughs) 
You know, the 17-year-old said, well, I'm halfway through my A-levels. What am I going to do? And I said, well, we can arrange for you to stay for a year, finish your A-levels, and then come and join us. And where am I going to stay? And we found some really good friends in the church, and we talked to them. Uh, we had to work that one out. And then the second one was really, really not happy because she was uh, 14 years of age. And how many of you know that's a tricky age? <laughs> that's a really tricky age. So I, we got agreement for all the kids except her. And I said, we won't make this move till you're happy. How many of you know that was a huge risk? <laughs> Putting your future in the hands of a 14-year-old. Uh, anyone here know what I'm talking about? She, she looked at me and she said, you mean you won't move if I'm not happy? I said, yeah, you, you have to be happy, but I'm believing that you will be. And I said, what would help make you happy? And she said, well, I want to go there and I want to see the school. I said, okay, we'll book two flights. And so I took my daughter and uh, we, we got to the airport and there was a strike on in Denmark that we couldn't fly to Denmark. And the woman said, well, I can fly you to Hamburg or I can fly you to Stockholm. So I said to my daughter, should we have an adventure? We can go home or we can have an adventure. She said, let's have an adventure. <laughs> She's 14. So I said, okay, where would you want to go? Stockholm or Hamburg? She goes, hmm. I said, well, if we go to Hamburg, we might be able to get a train to Denmark and then visit the school. She goes, yeah, let's do that. So we went to Hamburg. I'd never been to Hamburg, Hamburg Airport in my life at that time. I'm there with a 14-year-old girl. And uh, we, we get the bus from Hamburg Airport to Hamburg train, train Station. I remember we bought strawberries at the train station. Eight strawberries on the, on the train all the way. Two and a half hour, three hour train ride all the way to Denmark. Got off there, f went to the school, looked around the school. She liked the school. She liked the facilities. I said, do you, th do you think we could do it? And she said, let me think about it. <laughs> How many of you know 14-year-olds know, know how to keep you hanging? Oh, and you know, we kind of waited two weeks and then she kind of, she did the, um, you know that song from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same? Yeah, do you know that teenagers know that song with their eyes? <laughs> Have you seen that one? <laughs> you ask a 14 year old to do something, you go, oh. <laughs> can you tidy your room? All right. Can you do your homework? Okay. <laughs> so I said to her, would you like to go to Denmark? She goes, all right. And I said, no, I want you to be happy. And we got her to the place where she said she was happy. So we, we moved to Denmark. Now, here's the thing. I could have come in and I said, I'm the dad. I've made the decision. I could have done that. I could have played the God card. I could have got, I prayed about it and I have a great prayer life with God and God has told me. Have you know when you play that card, you silence everybody? I want to recommend that you don't play that card. Now, do I believe God speaks? Of course I do. But here's what I believe. When God speaks, he speaks to everybody. So if you really feel it's God, have confidence he'll talk to your spouse and talk to your kids. Have that confidence. I hear people use God language all the time, and it's manipulation. God told me, God showed me, God... You know, I said, wow, you have a hotline, don't you? <laughs> Humility says, 
I believe God told me this. I think. I have a sense. I was arguing with a guy one time. I was about to appoint a worship leader in our church. And uh, he, he looked at me one time. He said, I'm 100% convinced that guy's wrong. And I said, oh, I'm 60% convinced he's right. <laughs> he looked, 60%? I said, I haven't made a decision in my life where I was 100% convinced. Not even getting married. <laughs> Well, well, let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it. If you're 100% convinced, where's faith? Hello? You see, if you're 60% convinced, you need faith for the other 40. I don't need faith for the 60. Do I? I need faith for the 40. And so often we're using language in an unhelpful way and it is not an expression of humility. It's an expression of posturing yourself, trying to get advantage over another person. You're parading your spirituality. You're parading your prayer life, your devotional life with God. And you're saying, my, my life with God is so close. I'm absolutely convinced here. Well, if you are absolutely convinced, you don't have to use that language with another person. Jesus didn't do it. Jesus used language like this. What can I do for you? Well, you're Jesus, don't you know? Yeah, but I'm, but I'm here to serve you. You tell me. Tell me what you need. Tell me what you want. And Jesus comes with that. He humbled himself. He made a choice. Uh, he took on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man. He made as an appearance of a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. You know what I love about the obedience of Jesus? It didn't stop till he died. You know, in other words, there wasn't, there wasn't a line he reached where he goes, no, here and no further. I'm not going any further now. True humility goes the distance. True humility is willing to trust God in the face of death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him. Before honour is humility. Wherefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before honour is humility. Before there is the throne, there is the cross. Before there was the throne of Egypt, there was the pit that Joseph was thrown into. Before there was the palace for David, there was the cave of Adullam. Before the disciples preached on Pentecost uh, and saw thousands come, they couldn't cast out a demon in Luke 9. Humility. <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't get the success without going through the pain of learning. And the pain of learning just requires a humble heart. Let, let me give you a few things that have really helped me. Humility is revealed when we embrace difficult circumstances and keep our integrity like Job did or David or Joseph. Humility is revealed when we share the glory of our achievement with those who serve alongside us. 
Have you noticed how great people, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sully. Uh, it's, it's, it's about the airplane that landed on the Hudson River in, in, um, in America. And they made a movie of it starring Tom Hanks. And, and there's a wonderful scene in that movie where they, they look at him and they said, you did what no other man could do. He said, you rescued every single person, not one person died. And he said, well, it wasn't just me. It was the, it was the uh, rescue teams and it was the boat people and it was the ambulance people. And he just gave, he gave honor to all the people involved in that day. Yeah, he landed the plane, that's for sure. But then every single person was saved within 17 minutes and in icy waters in the Hudson River. You know, you can die of hypothermia in five minutes. But he gave honor to a whole team of people. That's real humility. He, he knew what he brought to the table. He knew the skill he brought. It's interesting, you know. There's a lovely point where there's, there's an inquiry there. And uh, they, they, they had different people trying to simulate him doing that landing. And they said, well, you know, there were three airports you could have landed to. And so he just asked the question to the pilots. How many times did you have to do that uh, simulation before you could do it 17 times in other words the first 16 times they all failed and he said well I didn't have 16 practice runs (laughs) and they said how did you know to make the decision and I love his answer he said I eyeballed it (laughs) I eyeballed it you know that's that's just, just honest it's just humble but, you know, listen, if you lead a team, if you're part of a team, give credit to the whole team. The reason I can be in this country for an extended period of time is I have a phenomenal team back in London. I have a phenomenal team. It's not just one person. It's the team that's outstanding. It's the way they work together. It's the way they collaborate. You know, can I, can I just say there's an outstanding team in this church? There's an outstanding team. I honor that. Humility is revealed when we're able to laugh at ourselves. Have you noticed that proud people hate being made fun of or teased? But humble people don't mind. You know, my kids tease me all the time. All the time. I remember Bruce Monk, he came over to our house for for a, a Sunday lunch one time. And the kids spent an hour just entertaining him by talking about me. And just all the dumb stuff dad has done. (laughs) Just, you know, all the embarrassing moments. How many of you know your kids love to share that stuff? And and you can get all proud and offended, or you can just learn to laugh. You just learn to laugh. It's just, it's terrible. I remember one of the stories my kids love to tell is a story at our Bible college one time where there was a woman who was choking. And I, you know, at the Bible college that I'm now the director of in Denmark, Um, there's an eating area and there were about 80 people sitting down to eat and as I walked into the room I could see this woman was choking but everyone was talking and nobody could see it it was like you know it was like that moment in the movies where you just focus on two people there's a whole crowd of people and she made eye contact with me because I wanted to I thought oh I'm not getting involved here and then she made eye contact with me and then I felt responsible And so she's looking at me and she's choking and nobody else is noticing. And the only thing I could think of in my head was Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) You know that part in the movie, you know, the Heimlich maneuver? It was the only thing I could think of and there she is choking. So I I, I thought, oh, I'll do the Heimlich maneuver. Nobody in my life has ever taught me how to do the Heimlich maneuver. (laughs) 
I've just watched a movie. I, I saw. I thought, well, I've got to get under the sternum. And I thought, you know, I just panicked. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I get, and she was a little woman. So I got behind her and I start to do this Heimlich maneuver. And, uh, you know, nothing's happening. So I get stronger and I'm doing it so strong. Her feet are lifting <laughs> off the ground like this. And, uh, and it, you know, it just, you know, and then right at that moment, my daughter walked in. Now, can you imagine? My daughter walked in and there's this father going like this <laughs> with, a, with an old woman. And she looked and she said, what is my dad doing to that woman? And then finally a nurse came over and sort of laid her down and sort of did it. I couldn't eat at the college for a month. I was so embarrassed. She lived. But my kids love to tell that story. You, you just got to learn to laugh at yourself. We all do stuff that we're, it's all well-meaning and it just ends up going pear-shaped. You know what I'm talking about? Come on, you've had those moments. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just so glad nobody had an iPhone, you know, filming it. It would have gone on Facebook. That would have been it. Humility is revealed when we're able to rejoice at the success of others without getting jealous. Hello? Without getting jealous. You know, when I was a teenager and people succeeded, I got jealous. Even when I was a young adult, people succeeded. I got jealous. I couldn't rejoice in their success. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. Come on, when people succeed... We need to be happy for them. You know, this is a tricky one. It's a tricky one because it goes to the heart of what drives us. When some, you know, if you're a young lady here and somebody gets engaged, do you in your heart say, oh, I wish somebody loved me and wanted to marry me? Or do you generally rejoice for your friend who got engaged? Come on. Break out of that pattern of thinking. Choose humility. Choose, no, I'm going to be happy for that person. God's got a person for me. God's got a timing for me. I'm going to keep living for Jesus. It will happen one day. Listen, I've got a 37-year-old daughter who's not married. I've had this conversation many times with her. It's something I live, and it's very real in our family. But she's chosen the road of humility. She's actually waiting for the right person. I think, well, good on you. Good on you. Here's another one. Humility is revealed when we're able to help restore others who failed without judging them or thinking we're better than they are. You know, Galatians 6.1, it says, you who are spiritual, help to restore a person overtaken in a fault. It says, in a spirit of meekness. Oh, there it is. I love it. The new King James, the old King James said spirit of meekness. The new King James says spirit of gentleness because it's humility, gentleness, meekness. How many of you know that if you're in a place of brokenness, you want people who are humble and gentle to treat you in that place of brokenness? I remember one time I was um, working, I used to uh, manage a print design company and uh, at one time I was around about 30, 30 years of age, I fell down a flight of stairs. And uh, it was just, it was really bad. I fell down the flight of stairs. I ended up at the bottom and I thought, oh my gosh, I hope my back is okay. Because I've had a number of accidents with my back. And I thought, oh, I hope I'm okay. And I got up 
and I was just checking things, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'm all right, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm good. And then I felt a pain in my hand, and I looked down, and my little finger was pointing at, at 90 degrees. Yeah, that's grossed you out completely, hasn't it? And I, I looked at my hand, and I thought, that doesn't look right. <laughs> and, uh, and so I jumped in the car, and I drove to the hospital. And, um, you know, they, they had to x-ray my hand. And uh, it was in the old days when you had, you know, bits of film for x-ray. You couldn't do it electronically. This is going back 100 years. Um, and, uh, and so I was there for hours at the hospital waiting for this report. And then this sort of very attractive young doctor, she was probably about 26 years of age, uh, she came to me and she said, well, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, I rather like the humorous way she's doing this kind of appealed to my sense of humor and I said okay what what's the good news she said your hand your finger's not broken so I said well what's the bad news she said it's really badly dislocated and I have to put it back in place (laughs) and I said can I have an anesthetic and she looked at me and I'm not lying and she said don't be such a baby Now, the fact that I was 13, she was about 26 and very attractive. However, you know, at that point, you know, everything in me on the inside kind of wanted to scream, but I want an anesthetic. I don't like pain. And, uh, and then the macho side of me kicked in and I goes, okay. <laughs> but on the inside, I'm screaming already. And, that, and so I said to her, well, well will it hurt? And she looked at me and she said, more than you can possibly imagine. (laughs) I mean, you know, that is not what you want to hear before a dislocated finger is going to be put back into its socket. That That is not what you want to hear. And so I said, okay. I said, please be gentle. She was laughing by this point. So so I'm gripping the side of the chair with my left hand and my hand is here and I I felt her hand wrap around my little finger. You know what I mean? And I'm just going, I've never prayed so much in all my life. It was like I was trying to repent of every possible sin that I could imagine. You know what I'm saying? When you're in that moment, you just think, oh, Jesus, yeah, I repent of that, I repent of that. Just be gracious to me right now. And she grabbed my finger and then literally it was like a jolt and it was back in place. And I hardly felt a thing. I said, oh, that was okay. She goes, yeah, I was just kidding you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know how much repenting I did in the 30 seconds? But here's the thing. She was skilled. She was trained. She was actually gentle at what she could do. And it restored me to wholeness. You see, Galatians 6 says, Paul says, when someone's overtaken in a fault, they already feel bad enough. You who are spiritual, help help restore. Come on. If, If you have a humble attitude... You will want restoration. You will want reconciliation. You will want things to be better. Now, sometimes that process is quick, like my little finger. Sometimes that's a longer process because when we talk about relationships, it gets complex. 
So sometimes you have to go on a journey of restoration. But you know what? It's so much easier to go on the journey if the posture is one of humility. So if we choose humility, if we choose that, you know what we do? We facilitate. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said these words in 2 Timothy 2. It was his last words in his last book to his best friend. And he said this, the servant of the Lord must not be argumentative, must not strive, not always trying to prove he's right. He says this, but be gentle, meek, apt to teach. I love that. Timothy was in a situation at Ephesus where three of the leaders had failed. Hymenius, Alexander, Philetus. Paul had to discipline all of them. It left them with a leadership crisis in the church. Timothy was sent there to appoint new leaders. Paul had to give a list of what eldership should look like in 1 Timothy 2. But then he's dealing with these situations with people where he's having to confront people. He's having to have difficult conversations. And Paul says, I don't want you to go in heavy handed with these people. Don't be argumentative. You're not there to win points. You're not there to prove you're right. Be gentle, be meek, be apt to teach. And then he said these words, if perhaps... God will grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth so that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who've been taken captive by him to do his will. In other words, Paul understood this was spiritual warfare. And his advice was, don't take authority over the principalities and powers that have deceived this person. His, his, his advice was, here's how you defeat the powers. You come in with the same attitude Jesus did. You don't come in as a power play as a power player, you come in to serve. You come with gentleness, you come with meekness, you come with humility. And you know what? God loves to intervene when we do that. If perhaps God will grant repentance. You know what I've discovered raising six kids? They're all adults now. Whenever I had to climb in their face and I had to use my authority, all it did was create rebellion and resistance in them. And we used to face off. So instead of doing that, I learned to be gentle. God gave me five daughters so that I could learn gentleness. You know, have you know, raising sons, you clip them around the ear and you can be best friends in an hour. With a girl, you can't do that. You have to learn tenderness. You have to learn to speak to their heart. You have to learn a different way. And I want to encourage us as a church. Come on, let's not take on the world's model of dealing with issues and dealing with problems and dealing with difficulties. Let's take on the Jesus model. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You know, when Paul wrote Philippians chapter two, he was basically dealing with two very difficult women leaders, Euodia and Syntyche. They were there in Philippians chapter four. They were brilliant ministers alongside Paul the Apostle, but they'd fallen out with each other. And so he writes to another leader called Zygos. It's sometimes translated true companion. And he said, help those women. But he, he lays the foundation 
in, in chapter two by saying, you know what? We need to have a posture that's the right posture towards one another. I want you to know that what I'm teaching you this morning works in any context. This doesn't just work in church. This will work in your business. This will work in your, in your place. If you will serve the teams that you lead, if you will come alongside them, people will be drawn to you because humility is attractive. People will be honest with you. They will be more forthright with you. You will know what you're really dealing with. And sometimes it'll be difficult to handle what people say because they'll speak the truth. It won't necessarily be the truth, but it'll be their truth. It'll be how they understand it, how they see it. Peter Drucker once said these words and it really helped me as a young leader. He said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. You know what I found as a father, as a pastor, as a leader? So many, so many times people share their truth, but they share the truth that they feel and they experience from their perspective. And what I have to do as a leader, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father sometimes is say, I acknowledge that's exactly how you feel, but let me give you another way of seeing it. And I start to define reality. Because when you're emotionally invested in something, you very seldom see things accurately. You see it colored by your emotion, by your emotional investment. You see it colored by the pain and the experience that you go through. And what you need is somebody to say, actually, this is the situation. This is reality. Let me help you take a step forward. And that's what we're called to do. And if you posture yourself and you say, you know what, I'm just going to be humble. I'm going to hear what God speaks to me. I'm going to share what I feel like God is saying, not claiming more truth over other people, but trusting the Holy Spirit to speak to their heart, the words that I'm speaking. I find people change. People shift. Things can move forward. The guy who said to me, I'm 100% right. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make the decision based on my 60%. Because there's a whole group of other people who feel the way I do. I'm not making this decision on my own. And let's see what happens. Maybe you're right and maybe I'm wrong, but I've got to take responsibility for this decision, so I will. You know, and after six months, he came to me and he said, yeah, you were right. I said, thanks. It was a faith decision. And you know what? I might have been wrong. But I was prepared to accept the responsibility for the decision. Do you get it? You see, faith isn't always about being 100%. It's just about being prepared to own the decision that you do make with whatever percentage you do have and trusting God for the rest. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I've never really been able to give my life over to God in this kind of way. Maybe you've kept control of the driving seat of your life. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is worth trusting. He's meek and lowly of heart. And the only way you will find real rest is if you surrender to His leadership, to His kingship, to His lordship. You can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself. You can't deliver yourself from your problems. And guess what? You can't deliver yourself from yourself. 
You know the biggest issue in my life? Me. I am the biggest issue in my life. And the problem is, everywhere I go, I find that I take me. And the only way I've been able to take steps forward in life is by allowing God to deal with me. He loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. Maybe you're here today and I want to encourage you, Jesus is worth surrendering to Maybe you're going to do it for the first time today. You've never done it before. Or maybe today you're going to surrender a new level of your life and your future to Jesus. You're going to say, God, I'm today, in this moment, I'm going to humble myself. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. There's an if there. You have to make the choice. Jesus made the choice. I want to encourage you. I want to implore you. I want to invite you. Make the choice today. Maybe the choice is about trusting God for your kids. Maybe it's about trusting God for your partner. Maybe it's about trusting God for your future. Maybe it's about trusting God in your employment situation. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is that in your heart you say, God, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to believe that you will do something. Show me how I can cooperate with you. Show me how I can walk with you in this to see your kingdom come and your will be done. So what I'd love you to do right now, if you'd stand to your feet. Just going to take an opportunity to respond to Jesus. If you know there's an area of your life that you know you just need to humble yourself. Don't, don't choose high ground where you say, I'm right, they're wrong. I'm good, they're bad. Don't, don't choose that posture. Choose a posture that says, God, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to believe. Maybe it's a breakthrough with family. Maybe it's a breakthrough at work. Whatever your context is right now, if you're trusting God for change, you're trusting God, invite Him first to change you. Invite Him first to do something in you so that He can do something in them. You see, Paul said to Timothy, you've got to take the posture of meekness and gentleness. I know they're wrong. I know they need correction. I know you need to confront them. I know they're ensnared by the devil. But you've got to come with the right attitude, Timothy. Choose humility. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.